Good morning, everyone. Um, just before I do the scripture reading, uh, just briefly, I want to um, thank you so much for praying for my trip. There was a couple of things in particular that I had asked you to pray for. One was around my um, the rheumatoid arthritis. And other than two mornings where my hands were a bit stiff, it was absolutely fantastic, including the uh, great long flight, uh, which was really fun. It was interesting when we first did our first leg from here to um, South China. Uh, the three of us, um, Heather had actually come quite early and rearranged so that we had seats together, which was lovely. And the first uh, the first leg of the trip, we were all chatty and sort of sitting straight up in our seats. By the time we did the second leg from South China into Kathmandu, we ended up all kind of lying on top of each other in a big uh, huddle, and uh, it was a great bonding start for the three of us. Um, the other thing I'd asked you to pray about was my relationship with uh, Pramila, and uh, I had told you ahead of time I already loved her, and she was deep in my heart, and that just continued while we were there. It was a wonderful time with her. Uh, and in chatting with Todd, there'll be some time a little later on where I can share some things with you. Um, and thanks for praying about that recent illness. It was a bit scary, uh, but I am definitely on the right side of things, so you don't need to pray for me about that. I mean, there's lots of other things in my life you need to pray about, but not that. <laughs> but um, but certainly as it relates to health and things, uh my encouragement would be for us to have little Oliver in our minds. So today's scripture reading is from uh, the 12th chapter of the book of John, and it runs from verses 12 through 27. The triumphal entry. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took their branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he'd done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus said to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life loses it. Sorry, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And this is God's word to us.
Good morning. Received a note from Heather Pasman uh, when she was on her way in this morning, and it relates to Nepal and the work of Himalayan life in Nepal. And so I want to read you what um, Heather handed to me. This is word for word from Daniel that was just received, and, uh, and then we'll pray over this. A prayer request from Daniel in Nepal. Sanam, general contractor of the Yangri School and longtime staff of Himalayan Life in Nepal, uh, was recently falsely accused of illegally altering timber in the national forest in Nepal. He's currently defending himself at the forestry, forestry headquarters. This being Nepal, where justice is an extremely flexible term and hard to come by, I really do covet your prayers for Sanam and Leela, his wife, at this time. Uh, there is not much doubt in our minds that this is mostly a spiritual attack designed to strip away joy and courage needed for this ministry. Thank you for coming alongside in prayer. Can you stand so we can pray over this matter? Heavenly Father, we come before you and from many miles away and pray for Sunam, for Leela, for Himalayan life and the work of that ministry. We pray that justice would be served that any false accusation uh, would be dealt with and disappear. And we pray for renewal. And we pray, as Daniel's words mention here, we pray for joy and for courage. We pray that the work of that ministry and the school in Yangri, from which Anne just arrived back, would uh, not be threatened in any way. So bless Sunam now, wherever he is, as he must have many questions at this time, and all those who are involved. We thank you for Anne, for bringing her back safely to us. Uh, We know that there were some difficulties there for her in terms of health at the end of the trip, and we pray for full recovery. Uh, We thank you so much for your goodness, but you remind us as well at times of the cost that is real. And so we pray your healing, and your victory, and we pray for them as they enter into Holy Week also. Lord, give them eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I always feel like I need to apologize on Palm Sunday, and those who know me know that this is true. Like Grady, the, who's now kind of the main priest at, at St. Timothy's, so he's he does the preaching and the so some of you would know Grady. He's Brian Bueller's son, who used to be the minister at uh, North Shore Alliance for years. And so Grady is the, is the priest of the little Anglican church that meets in here. And we pray before their service. So just before 9 o'clock, we often pray. And uh, so we did that. And then when they finished their service, Grady came back in. And he's got the robes. And, the, and they did, you can see the palm uh, leaves. They, they proce- uh, did a procession around a few times, singing the, the songs and had a very... Um, focused liturgy on Palm Sunday. But when Grady, when they were done the service and Grady came back in and I was still sitting in the office, Grady came in, kind of ducked in and and he just said, and don't you like when this happens? He said, are you okay? And I had to explain to him that this is like one of my least favorite days of the year. I really, really struggle spiritually on Palm Sunday. Um, And it's interesting. It, It always kind of matches up. You can always match it up with circumstances in your life so people can say, well, maybe it's this or maybe... But always on Palm Sunday, I struggle 
spiritually, I shouldn't say struggle because I think it's what I should feel. <laughs> struggle means you, you're trying not to feel that thing. But if you like want like, how are you? I'm great, thank you. I, I don't feel that so much on Palm Sunday because by God's grace, I am aware of what my Lord is doing. And what is going to happen to him right after the crowds praise him in jubilation? And so it's not really what ministers are supposed to say and pastors are supposed to say, but I feel like I have nothing to say and nothing to add. Just go and look at what he's doing and read the entire narrative of what we call in Christian faith, the passion, as we go from Palm Sunday to Good Friday. It is a matter of hours in between the praise of the crowds and that abandonment by people. But that's not actually what strikes me the most and why I feel this the most. Being abandoned by people isn't the end all and be all. I mean, it can hurt, right? But it is the fact that as Jesus allows this celebration to happen, and it's even a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that the king will enter the city on this donkey, he allows it to happen, but he does not share the same emotion that the people have. They are jubilant. They are praising. They are filled with hope for what's about to happen. And he weeps. And he says something, like Anne read, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose your life, you'll gain it. Or if you hate your life, you'll gain it. And so he is aware, obviously, of what's happening. He does say, remember in some accounts, the Pharisees come to him. It's a great, it's a great thing to hold in our in our. Um, landscape in which we live, these beautiful forests and hiking trails. and um, It's not quite like that where, where Jesus was, not at all. But you can kind of translate it into our, our geography and our landscape because the Pharisees are so upset that people are praising him. So they have this plot to kill him, which eventually works out. But they, they go to Jesus through crowd in some of the accounts and say, you need to stop people from yelling out in praise of you. You remember what he says? If they stop, even the rocks will cry out. Somehow, the praise of the rocks is more fitting than the praise of the people. The rocks will split at his crucifixion. We're told there is an earthquake. And the crying out Well, I guess the question would be, can you hear the rocks crying out? In Vancouver this week, there was an individual who purchased a car. It cost $5.1 million Canadian. Is nobody here? (laughs) You've left your lights on. (laughs) They then posted a post on Instagram that said, Look at how much tax I had to pay. My heart is tired. The same individual months ago purchased a private jet. And this, by the way, is his father's wealth. 
uh, purchased a private jet and had painted on the side of that jet his name. I just share this because as Jesus is heading towards the cross, you're living your life. And somehow I'm closer when I think about my own sin, my own self-centeredness to this kind of folly than I am to the sacrifice of Jesus. To understanding that it is in letting go of my life that I will know resurrection. Life and death are all through this story. There's different orders of events depending on the, the gospel that you read, right? So Jesus turning over the tables in the temple, that takes place in Holy Week in some places, not always. Uh, the anointing at Bethany takes place sometimes right in Holy Week and sometimes before it, depending on the gospel you read. And, and in, in John's account that Anne read for us, life and death are all over this before we get to Jesus entering Jerusalem. The Lazarus story is just before this. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You remember it. His Lazarus sisters, Mary and Martha, uh, get in contact with Jesus, who is not there at the time, and they say that your friend, their brother, has died, and that's in John eleven thirty five, where you get that famous verse. Now you can memorize a verse of scripture before you go home, because this is the whole verse. Jesus wept, and there's a lot of weeping on Jesus' part in John chapter eleven, John chapter twelve, and in other accounts of the triumphal entry. So as people are screaming their praises, he is, and this is, this, this is I think why I feel some of this, he is more and more, he's, he's allowing them to do this. It's not like he's condemning them for it, obviously. He's not like, you people are all so terrible, you don't get it. He's allowing it to happen. He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, but he's becoming more and more alone, even as it happens. And as their praises pick up, and then as kind of that celebration ends, and he enters the city, and they think, Things are going to work out for us because we are following him. That's what they thought, right? He weeps on that day. And then John chapter 12 has the anointing of Jesus at Bethany when that expensive perfume is poured over his feet and the woman takes her hair and wipes his feet and offense is taken at this by Judas and maybe others. It's considered a waste of money. I mean, we still live in a world where people think the worst thing to waste is money. It's not the worst thing to waste. The worst thing to waste is people and love. And so Jesus welcomes this act of love from this woman, this act of anointing before his burial that we can't know, we can't assume that she knew what she was doing. She was just declaring her love, her trust. And somebody who keeps track of such things said, What a waste of money. And some of you, that's how you live your lives. You think that the worst thing to waste is money. And for some of you, that has cost you relationships. Don't waste love. And then John chapter 12 and verse 9. The Pharisees are upset because, just get this. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. He was in the tomb. You get this kind of picture of Easter coming up, right? 
And they have to roll the stone away and Lazarus raises from the dead. And Jesus declares that he is the resurrection and the life. And the Pharisees, rather than thinking, wow, there's somebody here that raises people from the dead, think, oh no, now he's going to be really popular. And so they plot to kill two people. Do you know who the two are? Well, Jesus, that's your honest, best Bible answer. So yes, you're correct, it's Jesus. But they don't plot to kill only Jesus, they plot also to kill Lazarus. Which is just fantastic. And in this context, in the midst of all of this, right? This life and death, Jesus fulfills this prophecy and enters Jerusalem on a donkey in the midst of the praises of the people. So we know that some are there because of the raising of Lazarus. We know that some Greeks are there, some people uh, who are trying to make sense of this whole thing. Everybody's trying to make sense of Jesus. We said at the beginning of our Lenten series that there are kind of four threads going through. Firstly, that Jesus is the judge in our place. We try to make judgments on one another and on this world and what matters. And so it's easy for us to snicker at somebody paying $5.1 million for a car. But what it shows is that not only do others have trouble making judgments in this world, so do we. Jesus is the judge in our place. He's sinner in our place. This is always a reflection on Palm Sunday for me. I hope it is for you too. That part of the struggle I have is that without kind of focusing on individual sins, and there's much, there's many of those, and that's kind of what people are interested in more, like here's, here's what a sin is. This is, let's tell each other, you know, what sins we've committed. You could tell somebody else. Instead of focusing on individual sins, on Palm Sunday and around as we enter Holy Week, I am so aware that I am sinful. And somehow that awareness brings me to a depth where it's not only the bad things I repent of, it's the things that I think are good. Like the idea that I have any words to say to you. I'll go home and I'll pray tonight, and I know this will happen, and I'll think, what on earth, Heavenly Father? Do I have even a scratch to add? How? I repent. He's the sinner in our place. He takes on our sin. He suffers and is crucified. In Revelation, we're told, St. John writing, that he was slain from the foundation of the world. So when I hear about, like, you know, private jets and 5.1 million dollar cars or my own wealth or whatever it might be that I put beside that that our Lord was slain from the foundation of the world and I think now where am I going to get my values and the worst is that then at times we think if I follow him he will grant me and bring me success so that we wind up using him instead of humbling ourselves before him. He suffers and is crucified, and he does all of this finally before God. So I just have a couple questions for you this morning, and then an invitation. Firstly, the question, can you accept that something bigger is happening than you can conceive of or explain? 
Part of our problem as Christians, and particularly evangelical Christians, is that we think we can explain everything. Here's what the cross means. Here's what Jesus did for us. We neatly can package it into four little things. It's always more, always bigger. So if I were to say to you, can you explain to me what happened on the cross? Of course, to some degree, maybe you could. You'd be nervous if I picked you right now. Particularly the more familiar you are with church. Because you'd think, "Uh uh-oh, I'm supposed to know this. It's always bigger than you can conceive of or explain. It's one of the reasons that he's doing this alone, because nobody else can do it. Verse 24 of chapter 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So as the praises of the people are coming, this is what Jesus says. My hour has now come. Which clearly he means his death. Because right after that he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And that is news that we don't like to hear. It's not only true for Jesus, it's true for you. The good that your life will bring will come from you sacrificing your life on behalf of others. Not as a martyr, not as somebody who thinks, why don't people appreciate me? Not that. That's self-centeredness. The good that comes from your life is the awareness that your love for others means that you spend yourself on their behalf. And as Christians, we're called to do that for the world. Not to be against the world. Not to condemn the world. Whoever loves his life loses it. You have to ask yourself now, do you believe that? Whoever thinks their life is about them and getting what they can loses their actual life. You don't, when you live that way, fully know what it means to feel and be alive. It's interesting because in our culture, it's still this way. No matter how much we pile up, there's no true and lasting life in it. Many of you have reached places in your life of relative security. Not a lot of need. Are you without worry? Maybe years ago you would have thought, if I ever reached that place, then I'd be okay. Then I'd know I'm fine. But whoever loses his life, the word here is hates. It's, not, it's a tough translation. It just means um, instead of focusing on your life, whoever lets go. So hates is, is an English word that is difficult. Whoever loses their life in this world will gain it. I don't know how you picture this now. Picture laying down your life, letting go. And some of you, by God's grace, and this is, I'm not saying I'm glad for this for you, but some of you have faced suffering, uncertainty, things come your way that you did not know would come your way, you face loss, whatever all these things are. And when you are able to let go and humble yourself before God in the midst of that, then you begin to experience true life. But we're so, we're so averse to doing that that our first inclination is, I've got to find a way to make this okay and get back to feeling like I did before this happened. God is putting before you an opportunity. Let go. 
Don't try to protect your reputation before others. Don't try to make sure that everything will be secure. And if you can let go of your life in seeking Jesus Christ, you will gain life eternal and abundant. And verse 27. Those who have your Bibles can see verse 27. This is what our Lord said on the day that we sang his praises, maybe even meaning well, but self-centered too easily. Verse 27, as the king entered the city to the praises of the people, he said, now my soul is troubled. What life must we lose It's so hard for us who think if only I could get that next thing. If only I could have this little more security than I have now. What life must we lose? First of all, we must lose the life according to worldly values. A world that is filled with idols and greed and wealth and power. And we think we become more impressive If we have those things. And you are more impressive to people. In some ways. But it doesn't gain you life. You must lose that kind of life. That doesn't mean you can't have those things. It means that your life can't consist of those things. Riches are a difficult burden for people to carry. And you say right away. Even as I say that. I wish I had that burden. Ha ha ha. Because you so easily judge other people. But all of us in this world, we're here in North Vancouver. We are wealthy. And that is a difficult thing because then we put our trust in that. We must lose that kind of life. I never want to. Ever. I want that security. I like it. But I must humble myself before the Lord and say, my life is in you, not in this. Secondly, we must be aware of our psychological tendencies. We must lose that kind of life that has a compulsion for success and to be held in high esteem. What is it that brings you then to this loss of worldly values and this kind of compulsion? Well, often you can, you can get there by spiritual growth and progress but most of us aren't committed enough to kind of spiritual growth and depth and so by God's grace he can use things like tragedy failure loss aging some of you were so impressive 20 years ago you ever feel that Have you allowed your aging to open you up to the goodness of God? Or do you just wish you had as much strength as you used to? If you lose your life, you'll gain it. Amen.
and amen. And Jesus knew this as he entered the city. He was being so loving and so gracious to these people. He said he was troubled. His soul was troubled. But his focus was on, oh, you're all kind of praising me, but let me tell you something. (laughs) He's already preparing them for what will happen. Verses 44 to 47 before we turn to communion. And Jesus then, same time, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. See how he's doing this before the Father? And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Now hear this. This will be at least a little bit of hope as we enter in toward Good Friday. Whoever sees me sees him who has sent me. I have come into the world as light. And he is light. All those other things are either just lesser lights or darkness. And the darkness is weighing some of you down. But he has come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me, he says, may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. As Grady pointed out, in his sermon this morning at St. Tim's. Well, that's a cross back there that's covered up. The Anglicans that meet here cover up these symbols before Easter. Grady pointed out that the cross was a sign of God's love for us. He didn't love us because of the cross. In other words, you know, he was against us and then the cross made him for us. The cross exists. The giving of Jesus' life exists because he always loved us. And I don't quite know what it means that Jesus took on the sin of the world. But I will humble myself before it and before him. Come, Lord Jesus. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds. Forgive us for trusting in things and reputations. Thank you that we know you are close to the brokenhearted. And we don't want to be brokenhearted. And somehow now, we watch you walking to a place where we can't get. You're utterly alone. And I pray that each of us here, every person here would know that what you are doing, you are doing for us. That we would know your light. That you are doing it for the whole world, not only for us. Forgive us for thinking that our salvation is the big news. Our individual salvation. It's part of a much, much bigger story. What you're doing for this whole world. So now as we receive this bread, your body broken, and this cup, your blood poured out, 
We trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He said in the same passage, the same part of Scripture, he said that the Son of Man, he said, I'll be lifted up from the earth. It's a reference to an Old Testament story in the Exodus, but he said, I'll be lifted up from the earth, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to me. Come, Lord Jesus. Ushers, come.